0: This is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And today is a very special day as we have the ultimate magic maker, ball juggler, and queen of my world, Janet Billig Rich. Whoop, whoop. whoop, whoop. <laughs> Janet was at ground zero of the tidal wave of the alternative music scene in the 90s. And what started with her simply selling T-shirts for Sonic Youth and R.E.M. age 16 evolved into her managing all her favorite bands, including Nirvana, Hole, The Lemonheads, The Breeders, to name a few. And this was all by the age of 22. And then it hit her that she was in the music industry, Janet then moved to Atlantic as the youngest senior executive before founding her own company, Manage This, where she went on to produce Tony-nominated musical, Rock of Ages, the Down from the Mountain tour based on the music from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, and a documentary on the Pixies reunion tour called Loud, Quiet, Loud. And most recently, the Moulin Rouge Broadway show. I've literally never met Anyone who doesn't adore Janet, and that's a testament to her incredible positive impact and ethos, as she's always just trying to make things better. And this was nicely summed up by noticing that on the Nirvana Unplugged album, Janet is the first person thanked for making that show happen. And there are so many of those examples. In her own words, Janet's mission is facilitating the creative vision of people she believes in. Well, those people are incredibly lucky, Janet.
1: Well, thanks. That's so, well, some of it's mostly accurate. <laughs> what What is an accurate? Oh, I don't know. It just sounds so like, I don't know, hubrisy. Like,
0: oh, I did all this. Well, you did. <laughs> <laughs> but there's always like giant teams of people and, you know. Well, and I think that's something that's kind of your nature is always paying credit to everyone else. But, you know... People are paying credit to you, and so they should. Uh, um, thank you. But it's so wonderful to have you on the show. You're the ninth episode. It's the ninth of August. There's something beautiful about that. Um, and we met originally because I was doing a show in, in New York. I didn't really know anyone. There was this question of who could moderate it. And uh, and a friend put us in touch, and within five minutes you'd contacted the three biggest music editors and i'm still friends with one of them he was on the show a couple of weeks ago craig marks um and you know we hadn't met and that was just so incredible um so like from the first impression of you it's just like this is someone that just wants to help people and make things you know connect yes absolutely yeah
1: And also just get it off my, like, to-do list. (laughs) It's like if it comes into my inbox, it's like, I have to deal with this. Otherwise, it's going to, like, sit there. I hear that you have three piles. Or you had three
0: piles.
1: (laughs) Uh, That's back in the day of, like, analog. So, yes, that was my system, which is I had to have three piles on my desk. And one was, like, urgent. And the next was, like, have to finish today. And then one was Can wait. So at the end of every day, I'd throw out the can wait pile <laughs> until like it would come back enough times that it would become urgent or have to be done today.
0: I thought you threw out two piles, Janet. Maybe I did throw out
1: both <laughs> piles because <laughs> there was just so much incoming. And again, this was like pre emails and inboxes that could almost be ignored. It was like actual like papers and faxes and things. So you had to deal with it. Otherwise, you're... Desk would be a mess.
0: So before we get into your orange juice for the years with this idea that you know music is such a big part of people's lives, um, even if they're not directly involved with it, it yeah. has this ability to, to really be a companion or a remedy or medicine in so many different ways. Um, but you're someone who's directly been involved with music the whole time. But going back to that thing about helping people... Is that something, have you always been like that? Have you always been naturally empathetic and thoughtful?
1: I don't know if it's empathetic and thoughtful. I think I've naturally was an organizer. Like my dad would tell stories about like, I'd be in second grade and like, I'd want to go ice skating. So I'd make sure I'd walk down the block and I'd get all the other kids, you know, on our block to be like, you want to go ice skating? Let's go ice skating. We're going at two o'clock, you know, like, and I'd just be, like getting a crew together for anything, like anything, particularly what I wanted to do, but from anything from like Halloween trick-or-treating to after-school snacks to let's go bake cookies, like whatever it was, I'd get a gang. So I think I did that, like that's just in my DNA, is to organize people.
0: And was that because you felt like it was more fun or more productive or more social? Yeah, more social. I like a crew. Mm. you know. (laughs) Well, so looking directly at this idea of, you know, music and and it being able to lift us out of a depression or move us to tears, and it being this remedy, this tonic, this orange juice for the year, is there a, a direct example of how you think about music in that way?
1: Um, a direct example, I'm not sure. But music is such an identifier for everybody. It's like, whatever situation it is, for me, or I think for most people, it's like, and what song was playing? And you could tell your whole timeline of your life by think of a moment and what song was either. I didn't listen to a lot of radio because you had albums, you know, forty fives into albums into cassettes in my car, into CDs in my car, and you know, then obviously with the digital revolution, music everywhere. So you could think about any moment in your life, like. I think about like the car I had when I drove, you know, across country for the first time. And I could know every song, the song I listened to in Texas, the song I listened to in Louisiana, the song I listened to in Tennessee, or eight thousand songs in Tennessee, because it's so long and takes forever to get across. But like so every moment I could identify with music. So I just think like the world doesn't exist without music. And I don't know if you saw that movie yesterday um with the beatles it just came out i just saw it so it's top of mind but it's like what would the world be without the beatles like there's no world without the beatles but it's it could be almost with any you know with certain artists like there's like no reason to get up in the morning unless there's a good song and there's so many good songs
0: well and and segueing naturally into the first song that imprinted on you do you remember what that was well, there, I, you know, when you asked me that originally, there was definitely a few different examples,
1: but I remember Carol King particularly and the Tapestry album because it was on in my childhood home all the time because my mom loved it and my sisters both loved it. So I think, you know, from, you know, I feel the earth move to, um, uh, you know, just the whole, the first side, the second side, every single song is amazing. And so I think that's the first one that because it just was on, when I was probably, I don't know, six, five, six, seven, eight, all the time in my house. And they also, you know, Yes was on a lot. King Crimson was on a lot. Judy Collins, Joni Mitchell. Like, there was definitely other music that affected me. Um, like, I think my sister's love of Yes and hot tuna and those just made me like hate all that (laughs) like by the time I was nine I think I'd seen yes five times wow (laughs) just like not good for anybody but (laughs) um but uh the particularly the carol king ones I loved the song so much like they I just every word and she's such a poet and then learning her story like I had no idea till I was you know more of a grown-up what her whole backstory was and what she went through and what she went through to become an artist was like i wonder if that's why i connected so much like you just felt that
0: yeah well let's take a listen to i feel the earth move by carol king yes Janet was going wild in here. Exactly. So good.
1: <laughs> Still so good.
0: So good. Literally
1: aged so beautifully. Like, it sounds incredible.
0: Well, and it, I mean, it is timeless. And I think that's what happens with so many great artists, great songwriting. Is you, you couldn't really place it in time. Not at all. Um, and that's definitely one of them. That was I Feel the Earth Move by Carol King, 1971. Uh, That was the first song that imprinted on Janet Billigrich. And you were six, seven? Yeah, I was little. I was like a little kid. I was like, you know, little. (laughs) (laughs) Because I I read somewhere that as long as you can remember, you were always into music. Yeah, for sure. Nadia's theme?
1: (laughs) Oh, I totally did her routine. Like I made a pretend balance beam in my brain in my living room. (laughs) and would do my own balance beam routines to Nadia's theme. Do you oh, remember that? I loved it. I'd pr- I really probably hurt myself now <laughs> even if I tried. <laughs> but yes, I could picture myself in my leotard in my living room with orange brownish shag carpet. Just feeling it, feeling all Going the feels. For it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so just to set the scene, you were growing up in New York Long Island. Yeah. Uh family of Counselors, therapists? Yes, yeah. My mom was a social worker.
1: My dad was a guidance counselor. And you had two and, older and had sisters? Two elder, yeah, two older sisters. So it was a lot of ladies. Were you all close? Yeah, I mean, we were close quarters. <laughs> so we started out in a small apartment um, in Queens and then moved to a small house on Long Island. So we were always sharing rooms and, you know, we were close. Sharing quarters. music? Well yeah they tortured me with their bad taste but <laughs> it- I mean it wasn't bad I shouldn't say that like I don't want to diss yes and oh you can diss and yes and I'll still go see them like I and one of the first albums I worked on when I was working like early days at Caroline Records somehow we ended up putting out an ABWH album which was Anderson Bruford Wakeman and Howe which were members of Yes mm. <laughs> so they, they came back they came back like minus <laughs> like uh Someone who was not in anyway. Oh no, now I'm gonna piss off no. all the
0: prog rockers, but um, <laughs> which is just dub labs audience. <laughs> yeah, they're probably
1: like, Who? What?
0: <laughs> <laughs> but
1: uh, yeah, so I ended up working in ABWH album, which was hilarious, and I was sad much pride because I knew so much about them. <laughs> they're probably like, Why is this like 21 year old like <laughs> who's working at the label? No, is so deep. I go deep on yes, but um, yeah, so you just get influenced mm. by you know what's around you and what you have access to so until I was able to buy my own 45s when I got my allowance when I think that started when I was probably 9 or 10 then I could pick out my own music and that was awesome and that's sort of when I started reading magazines and started learning about like England yeah, or California <laughs> punk rock like you know it was like I got into like I bought that NME and um, Melody Maker and I'd buy all those papers like in my like not when I'm nine, but probably when I was like 12 or 13. Wow, when I really started. Yeah. yeah, And I got really into the fanzine culture and would like trade tapes with people in the mail and trade fanzines and had all these tricks on how to like get free postage for sending stuff. Very scrappy. Very
0: crafty. Yeah, crafty, <laughs> scrappy.
1: And when I heard um, like the Hamilton the whole young
0: scrappy and hungry, I'm like,
1: that's, that was me. <laughs> I was just like Alexander Hamilton.
0: I was young, scrappy, and hungry. And so then what age did you start going and seeing live shows? Oh, pretty young. Probably when I was 14, I
1: got really into going out a lot. And I went out probably four or five nights a week. And I was seeing music in Manhattan. And there was even a whole music scene on Long Island. There was a couple of clubs and some dance clubs that would have rock
0: shows. So, yeah, I was pretty young when I got into seeing live music. Do you think having two older sisters sort of made you, gave you more freedom that you could just, like, go yes, out? Yes, because they didn't like, they liked different kind of live music. Like,
1: they'd go see, like I said, I saw Yes so many times and King Crimson and um, Pink Floyd. And, like, I saw all the, like, a lot of big stadium concerts when I was, like, seven and eight and nine. They didn't go to as much, like, club concerts, but they did give me a very soft runway for no rules because both my sisters were good kids and they weren't like outraging, but they'd go out and they had social lives. So I think my parents were just like, oh, Janet's a good kid. (laughs) Like she's not going to go. And I didn't drink or party or anything. I wasn't into anything, you know, nefarious. I just wanted to go see music. So I really didn't have, like, curfew or rules, and I was allowed to do whatever I wanted, basically.
0: Do you remember the first live show that really had an impact on you? Oh, I don't. I saw so
1: many, and I never kept, like, a journal or a ticket stub. I know people, like, have every ticket stub and every, everything. I have, like, nothing, and I have to go back and ask, like, high school friends. I'm still very close to my girlfriend Jackie Nalpian. Shout out to Jackie, um, who we'd go, we were in high school together. She was, I think, a grade older than me, although we're the same age. And um, we'd go see, she'd remember every band we saw. But I know we saw, like, very early days, like, a lot of English music. Maybe early days I saw a lot of, like, California punk rock coming to L.A. So maybe Red Cross the flesh tones. Oh, there was that old Boston contingent. Like I saw all these bands from Boston. Uh, I don't remember a lot. So I don't quite remember. That's
0: fine. Lot. There were so many. There were so many. I <laughs> went out all so- the time. <laughs> if you were, were calculating four nights, five <laughs> nights a week <laughs> since you were 13, that's yeah. a lot.
1: So-, so I have a group of friends that will remember everything. And I could always go to them.
0: Okay, well they'll be them. the follow-up show.
1: Exactly. <laughs> we'll need a deep dive <laughs> to my fourteen year old concert.
0: <laughs> so looking at your orange juice for the years, if that yes. first song, um, first record really tapestry was something you got from your family. Yeah. Um, what was the first album that had an impact on you as Janet, 13, 14 year old, or you know, around yeah. that age, going out, finding her identity? Yeah, that for me was absolutely no doubt
1: the replacements let it be for sure it was the first album that like I just was like it connected to me on such a deep level and because I think as it had like everything from like Gary's Got a Boner like (laughs) it was punk rock which I love to songs like Unsatisfied and Androgynous which were like oh my god talk about poetry and depth and like they just had Everything and then, like, I started seeing them live. I'd seen them live before "Let It Be" came out. Um, I'd been, I saw them from like their first cassette release tape. Um, so they were early days. You drove all
0: over the country to see yeah, them. Yeah, that
1: was when I was a little bit older. I think I was like seventeen or eighteen. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I did. I drove. I saw them all over this
0: country. I've seen them many, many many and more many times <laughs> <laughs> well let's take a listen to Unsatisfied from the replacements Let It Be
1: oh
0: so good so good you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. This is BT Wolf. I'm here with, when I say my favorite person, I'm not, I know I say my favorite person a lot, but this really is my favorite person. <laughs> Janet Billigrich, the amazing manager, producer, supervisor, all-round music guru even though she would hate that description um and we were listening to unsatisfied from the replacements let it be record which was an an album that had a big impact on you yes absolutely it still slays me i
1: still hear that i'm like uh like stops me in my tracks
0: it's fucking awesome. Fucking awesome. <laughs> well, I was not going to swear, but considering <laughs> one of your songs has a swear <laughs> in the title, I'm like, this episode will just be explicit. Um, so what is it you most love about that?
1: I don't know. It's just like it makes you emotional. There's something about it that's so raw and so
0: um, honest. So I think that connect, that I really connect with. You were telling me off air that Rolling Stone described it as... Oh, it was,
1: they <laughs> described a Guided by Voices album, which I think, you know, who begats who begats who in your life is like so much of the roadmap of music. So I ended up um, managing Guided by Voices, um, who are still like one of the fucking coolest bands in the world. Um they're playing New Year's Eve in Los Angeles, a hundred songs. Um, and it's sold out in like a hundred seconds. So I love that they're crushing it still. But what I thought was funny was Rolling Stone called Alien Lanes, one of their albums, a, a, a lo-fi masterpiece. <laughs> which is like, you know, you can't call the a replacements. <laughs> yeah, You can't call the replacements or GBV or, you know you know, it's, it's
0: their own <laughs> lo-fi masterpiece that makes me laugh. It's <laughs> funny. Going back to Let It Be, You yeah. you've said that that record, or maybe it was just the replacements in general, but from that point, music was just so much a part of your life. Yeah, absolutely. They were definitely, like,
1: my first favorite band, and then all of a sudden I was, like, working mm-hmm. with bands, I think you said this in the intro, like I literally had no idea there was a music business. I grew up in a world where people worked for the phone company and people worked at the school. Like I had no idea there was an entertainment industry on any level. I never thought about it. Like I never thought like, I wonder who makes records. I wonder who books the bands. Like it just never occurred to me and no one ever mentioned it. So (laughs) when I was sort of, Just being, you know, young, scrappy, and hungry, and I was, you know, met some bands, and I was like, oh, you should book a show here, or you should play there. There's this venue I like. Why aren't you playing there? And sort of that's how I got into managing or just even doing things in the music business whereas I was just trying to facilitate things I was interested in seeing happening. I was just working. I started making money. Like not even knowing there was this whole business. It was so like a light bulb moment when I learned like, wait, there's record companies? Like I had no idea at all. So um, I forgot what my point was.
0: Just that it was kind of, it was happening around you and you were part of it because you were passionate about it. And, you know, if you were somewhere and something needed to be done, like, can you make these posters or can you hand out these flyers? You you did that. I just did whatever. Yeah. Just to, like, be around and make stuff happen. And then I realized it was like a business. And then I was making money. <laughs> so how did you end up? Cause you, so you started selling T-shirts for Sonic Youth REM 16. Yeah. Um, and then at Caroline, you were publicizing for the Pumpkins and... And yeah. then obviously by 22, you're managing all these bands. What was yeah. the sort of progression of that like? Um, you know, it's also vague. And it was like one thing
1: sort of like melded into another. But I was um, had done some touring and selling shirts and doing that whole thing. And then I was living in New York City and I was in college. And I started working at Caroline Records as like a part-time thing. And then it really like went to full-time quickly. And I was first doing publicity. And then, you know, I didn't even know what A&R was, but I was like, we should sign this band, Pussy Galore." I go see them all the time. They're awesome. <laughs> it's like, and we ended up signing Pussy Glore and White Zombie, who were doing like incredibly well in New York City, Just lots of people were coming to see them. And I was just one of the people that came to see them. And I happened to be working at this record company and ended up like facilitating that. And then I just so funny, because I just saw um, Les Claypool and Sean Lennon, who i ended up working Sean I ended up working with later but who started a band together um, the Claypool Lennon Delirium or Prague Rock they're literally like yes and King Crimson <laughs> but uh, like the best parts of them and um, but anyway I was working at Caroline and I had seen Primus and we're like Everybody loved them. The show I saw like literally 3,000 people losing their shit and they weren't signed. And that was one of the bands I ended up signing at Caroline, which is so funny because I think I get credit for signing the Smashing Pumpkins, which I absolutely did not. That was Mark Williams. He signed them. I had absolutely nothing to do with it. But I did sign Primus, which I get no credit for and (laughs) which I'm not looking for. And I probably wouldn't have even remembered except I just saw the Claypool Lennon Delirium. And Les was like, you were so the person in our career. (laughs) Like you, there wouldn't be no Primus without you. And I was like, what? Like, I didn't even remember. So so it's hard for me to remember the trajectory.
0: It sounds like Caroline was sort of allowed you to go off and do this stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Keith Wood just sort of like, let me do my
1: thing, which I didn't even know what it was. But um, I guess like some of the key moments of Caroline was we had done a um, distribution deal with SubHop early days you know it was they they were first starting out so when any of the sub pump bands came touring in new york like our office was home base no one would think of getting a hotel it was like much too expensive in new york city so i'd be like well i have an apartment everyone could stay here and so i had like a little hotel going in my 250 square foot apartment on, <laughs> Avenue on 7th street and <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the neighborhood at the time, now it's been gentrified, but the neighborhood at the time was pretty rough. So anyone who came and stayed me had to, like, load all the gear out, up my fourth floor walk up, you know, lugging their ass, because if they left it in the van, it would get stolen. So, um, you know, I ended up knowing a lot of these artists well, and that's how I ended up meeting the whole Seattle thing and ended up eventually working with Nirvana. But before that, and separate from the sub-pop deal, but at the same time, there's a whole longer story, but I was trying to sign Henry Rollins and it all fell apart very last minute. And I was really depressed. I was so bummed out because up until then, like anybody I wanted to sign, we were able to make deals and put out records and make records. And that was awesome. And the Henry Rollins thing threw me for a loop and I was really bummed. And Keith Wood, my boss, was like, oh, we got to get you out of this funk. And I was like, well, there's this chick in California. I heard a single. It's awesome. We should definitely sign her. That'll get me out of my funk. And that was Courtney Love and Hole. And I had never met them, seen them. I Courtney had accidentally, or not accidentally, Courtney had called my apartment. This was pre-cell phone, so I had my online. And Courtney had called. L seven was staying with me, and Courtney had called, and we ended up talking on the phone for like two hours. Which, at the time, I didn't know that was just like her thing—like she'd just call and start talking. I thought I was special, <laughs> but um, you are, Janet. But that then no. <laughs> but um, so I ended up being. She told me all about her band, and just the way she talked about it was so inspiring. Like. And she's such a poet and she's like, you know, I think she's our Bob Dylan. I think she's incredible. Um, so I was like, we have to sign this chick from California. That'll make me feel better. And um, so we signed Hole and, you know, that was like a real moment because she was so um, clear about what what she wanted for Hole and her band and Eric Erlinson, the guitar player, was so talented and he worked at Capitol Records. So he really understand the music business probably more than any of us did. And... Um, and they were just so clear about what they wanted. And, you know, we were talking about who should produce the album. And it was like, oh, well, Kim from Sonic Youth would be great. with, And I just made a record with Don Fleming from Gumball. And so it was like, oh, Don and Kim will make the record. And, you know, it just all came together. And it was like Pretty on the Inside Still is one of my like absolute favorite albums. And, and then she was looking for a manager. And I was like the person at the label. And it was like, well... And I think Danny Goldberg and John Silva, that's when I met the whole management gang. And they were starting, they were managing Sonic Youth, and then they were starting to manage Nirvana. And I think they thought, like, this is in hindsight now, then it was like, well, I should manage Courtney and Hole because, you know, I signed them and I'm connected and I love them. But I think from their point of view, which I see now in hindsight, they were like, well, We better get this whole, you know, with Courtney and Kurt starting to date, we better be in control of, like, the whole thing. So let's bring Janet in and she'll deal with the whole mess of it all. (laughs) (laughs) But I only recognized that, like, recently. (laughs) Then I thought, and still from decades later, I was like, oh, it's because I was the right person. (laughs) But perhaps not.
0: (laughs) Well, okay, and there's so much there to unpack. <laughs> we don't have to unpack <laughs> any of it. We don't have to it. unpack any of it. We, we, have, we don't have the time. Um, and we're just about to move on to the music you'd send into space. <laughs> but before we do that, um, how did you first connect with Nirvana? I'm still curious about how that came oh, about.
1: I was working at Caroline, and okay. they came and stayed at my apartment. Okay. And they stayed at my place a whole bunch and because um, they toured a lot. So within... A year they would probably stay at my place like three or four times. And I the first time I saw them, I was blown away. They were an incredible live show. And I hopped in the van with them and went to their next six shows. And so, you know, just became friends and And that was Bleach. Yeah, that one might have been pre Bleach. Mm. It might have been the first single. Oh, amazing. And then definitely Bleach because it was Aberman was in the band. And um weirdly enough, he was I hadn't talked or thought about him in a decade and he was in a dream of mine <laughs> I should call his sister but last night two or three nights ago oh. and I woke up like you know like what I haven't seen him <laughs> in forever what
0: oh <laughs> and just going back quickly to what you're saying about dealing with the whole mess of it all you're such a down-to-earth honest humble generous individual and there must have been just a shit ton of craziness that you were having to deal with. How did you cope in general? To be honest, I didn't realize how crazy it was until I was so far out of it.
1: Like, it just seemed like normal. It didn't seem crazy. I mean, it seemed like a lot,
0: but it just seemed like I didn't know any different. So what music would you send into space, <laughs> Janet Billigrit?
1: Well, this was really hard. Because <laughs> I also, like, on one hand, want to pick, like, all my clients who, like, I know in my heart. And then I was like, well, I can't pick one because, you know, <laughs> I've worked with so many incredible artists and I wouldn't want to, like, single anybody out. Um, so then I was like, what do I think is, like, people in space need to hear and I picked Liz Fair, and then I wasn't sure which song and then I ended up picking "Fucking Run because it's so like uh. (laughs) it's just so honest (laughs) and I just I think she is incredible and like when that album came out and it was called Exile in Guyville and it was like basically an answer to the Rolling Stones which is so bold for a new artist to just like Draw a line in the sand, and she knew how awesome she was, and she was like college educated, and like you know, she used big words. <laughs> and I just think, and she's so smart, and I don't know. I just, I just think everybody in
0: space should know what it's like being a woman. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and all the feelings. <laughs> okay, well, let's have a listen to "Fucking Run" by Liz Fair. I woke up alone. On that dark note, <laughs> you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years, covers all subjects and all music genres. I'm BT Wolf. I'm here with Janet Billigrich. And that was Fuck and Run, Liz Fair, 1993, I feel like. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, and that was a song by song reply to the Rolling Stones double LP Exile on Main Street. Yeah. Um, super badass female punk so spirit.
1: Bold so bold. I love her.
0: And that's kind of your, you are a, I sort of hate the word feminist, but you are woman power, right? Yeah. I don't hate the word feminist at all. I mean, I know why people do. Mm. Like I, I get the
1: whole like hairy armpits of it all and like whatever. But
0: it's or- <laughs> more that I just feel it doesn't need to be said. It's like, it's a humanist and obviously women right. are part of humanity. So we, it, there just needs to be equality, like basic, yeah. you know. I know. Right? Yes, I totally agree, (laughs) but there's not.
1: Um, So yeah, I don't know. And somehow I just relate to women and particularly in songwriting and performing. But Kurt was also a feminist. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He was like really a feminist and an activist and for human rights and was very passionate about gay
0: rights and women's rights. Absolutely. I found a photo of him wearing your dress.
1: (laughs) I I think they played a whole show, and I think it was Hawaii. I can't remember. With all my dresses. (laughs) Wow, the whole selection. I think it was mine (laughs) Infinity's dresses. She'll remember. She's got a memory of steel.
0: And she'll say, yes, it was this dress of yours and that dress of mine. It was the Janet and Amy clothing line. (laughs) (laughs) So when you ended up at Atlantic, you were the youngest senior executive. Um, How was that? Because I imagine that must have been such a boys club.
1: Yeah. It was just not for me. It was like not a match. I'd been like at Caroline, which was almost our own little tiny company, which I felt a lot of, you know, ownership around. And then I was managing rock bands, which is very independent. You're just sort of doing your own thing and in charge of yourself. And then I had kept getting job offers. Many and at one point, I just basically acquiesced. Sort of like how you asked me to do your radio show. And I was like, no, not for me. No, not for me. And then I
0: said, like, if it's important to you, I'll come to your radio show. Can we just explain why, though? <laughs> <laughs> because Janet will always think that there's someone else who's more interesting, and that is BS. <laughs> They're like, you should have this person or that person.
1: But but then I say, if you want me to, I'll come to it, of course. and But it was similar to that with... I getting I like having a job there was a handful of like executives who were like come work at this company I'm at this company come work here and I think at a certain point I just act we asked and I was like all right I'll come work and it could have been five different companies at that point you know it was just like I had people ask me I think I was a little burnt out it was a lot and um, there was just a lot. It was a lot of bad energy and negative energy. And I, I just mm-hmm. think I looked at it as like, well, yeah, let me try it from the inside. And they offered me such an enormous amount of money. <laughs> it was just so, I was like, seriously, someone's going to pay me that? Um, so, yeah, so crazy. And I was like, yeah, I'll try that. And like within the first week, I was like, oh, I got to get out of Dodge. This is like not good, not good for me. So it took me several months to figure out a sort of exit strategy, (laughs) which involved me giving them back money, which I gave them like literally a check for a lot of money. And I just said, I need out of my contract and this isn't good for me. And I just want to go back and manage bands and like just do my thing. I didn't even want to go back and manage the bands I was managing. I was like, I just want to like manage punk rock bands and <laughs> just do my thing. And that's when I started managing Guided by Voices and Shiba Mato and I was the Blues Explosion and Boss Hog and, you know, just had my own little punk rock roster and built
0: that. And, and that was before founding Manage This? That was Manage This. That's when I started Manage This.
1: Yeah, so Manage This was born out of, like, me not being able to, like, be at a company like Atlantic Records.
0: Well, also because, as you said, like, that that thing that you were sort of within the industry had never occurred to you you were just doing what you loved with people that you saw as people who happened to be artists you know and then when you're in that environment where it's so corporate where you're kind of clearly brought in because you have the cool cred yes um but there's such a different approach to looking at artists as you know well, what's the single, and oh, you know, yeah. is this going to hit? And if this isn't going to hit, we're going to shelve it. And yeah. that's just not you exactly. in any way. It was way. such
1: a shock. I was like, <laughs> "What?" Like, it felt like I'd work with artists, and like, so much goes into making music. Like, people's lives and time, and their you know, and the the engineer and someone's uncle, and this one has to come run and do that. Like, it's just it takes an enormous amount of people and hours and thoughtfulness to make something. And then to be in a meeting where they're like, meh, like, like no one cares. It was just blew my mind. I was like, I don't want to know this exists. This is bad.
0: So by the, this point, you'd moved to L.A.? Uh, I think, no, I was in New York. Okay. Yeah, I was up in New, in New York until basically
1: I was pregnant. <laughs> and I was like, I need to live in New York or L.A. Like I was going back and forth a
0: lot. But then ultimately you came here, yeah. um, had your two incredible human beings. <laughs> yeah. Um And you said that you realized you, when they were about a year old and they could do more for themselves <laughs> than a lot of your clients. Yes,
1: <laughs> They were more mature and more independent than any of my clients at a year old.
0: <laughs> and was that part of your decision in stopping to manage bands? Yeah, I think it was that was definitely um the impetus was,
1: you know, there's the whole, like, oh, we'll talk about feminism. Like, you can't have it all. <laughs> I'm, I wish I could say you can, but you can't. And I couldn't be a manager and travel the world and be available for my clients and take my kids to their doctor appointments and their haircuts. And I have an incredible partner who will do everything. And, you know, he could hold it all together. He's incredibly competent and he could do all the roles. But it's like, as the mom, you want to be there. <laughs> like, I want to be there for the haircuts and for the doctor visits and the shots and the first day of school and all that stuff. And I was missed a lot that first year. And I was just like, yeah, no bueno so I stopped managing, with
0: the exception of Lisa Loeb, who is, like, my life partner. And everything that you're doing is still music, you know. It's m- Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and now I travel again because
1: my kids are big. And, you know, it's, it was the first five years. When they start kindergarten, I start traveling a lot more again. And that's when Rock of Ages happened, and I produced that. But, yeah, I just couldn't do that hustle
0: and, and I'd be a good mom. So it's a, a sad point in the show because we're now imagining that you are no longer with us, oh, right. <laughs> and um, and I want to ask you, Janet, what is the song that you'd like to have play at your memorial? You know, I, the first song that popped into my head is "In My Life" by the Beatles. I just think that is the uh, it just says it all. Well, let's take a listen to that right now. There are places. I- Was the Beatles in my life so beautiful? Um, and that was the song that Janet would choose as her memorial track. Yep. Why? It just says everything. It just says everything about life. Really does. And actually, one of your kids, so moving on to the record that you'd pass on to your kids, one of your wonderful children is named after a Beatle, Harrison. Um, and then we also have Molly. Have you thought about a record that you'd like to pass on to them?
1: You know, that changes absolutely every <laughs> single day because I do listen to a lot of music and fall in love um, passionately with a, lot of mu- with a lot of music. I'm obsessed with the Lizzo album because I love you. Um, <laughs> I just think she's amazing and there are pop songs that are just bold and incredible and sing alongable and um and I just want my kids to have that kind of power and inspiration at all times. And there's a thousand records they can't leave my house without knowing front and back <laughs> from you know Stevie Wonder to Zeppelin to you know there's so much. But like today, if I had to pick an album that says like take this with you on your journey of life, I'd pick Lizzo.
0: We're going to listen to that at the end, Um, but first I have to ask, what do you feel the thread is that connects all your Orange Juice for the Year choices? Oh, passion, authenticness. And thinking about music today, what do you think we've gained and what do you think we've lost We've lost albums, we've lost B-sides, we've lost track six, you know, like that importantness
1: of sequencing and a story in a whole album. That kills me that we lost that. But on the other side, what we've gained is there's just so, like there's so much great music right now because people don't, there's no cost to entry. Anyone can make a record, anyone can have a thought. And I do think sometimes like real cream rises to the top that you never know about. So I think that's exciting.
0: That's Awesome. Um, So ending on that incredible note, Janet, it's been so wonderful having you here. Um, I'm delighted and I know everyone listening will be delighted. And we're now going to listen to Truth Hurts by Lizzo. (laughs)